to Belling History with the Good Time Girls, a hyper-local podcast about the quirky history of Bellingham, Washington, and the fourth corner of these United States. Even though we like to keep things close to home, these stories are no less entertaining to the masses and those who find themselves, unfortunately, outside of the P&W. We are your hosts. I'm Ren. And I'm Colby. And we are co-owners of Belling History Tours, also known as the Good Time Girls. If you want to know more about our tour business, visit our website at bellinghistory.com. Today, we have another re-release episode from Bad Town, which is season two of the City of Subdued podcast from 2020, hosted (laughs) by Annika Fleming and Maria Della Gasparina, and co-hosted by us, as well as our founding good time girl, Marissa McGrath. So we recorded these episodes back in the pandemic early days. And if you haven't heard them before, they're a lot of our favorite bad belling history stories, true crime stories, stories from the dark side. If you have already listened to them, feel free to revisit or just hang around and wait until spring (laughs) when we will be back like the sun Mm -hmm. with new episodes. Hibernate like a little bear. Uh, yeah, we've uh, had a lot of fun making this podcast. It's been a lot of work. We're really excited about the new ideas that we have a brewing, but we definitely need to take some time to work on those. So we're going to give you guys a little taste of pandemic past um, and let you hear some of our classic belling history, which uh, we're super stoked to revisit with all of you. It's kind of fun. So yeah, we're going to make that happen. We haven't so far added any Spotify insert ads or anything because we just weren't sure what was going to happen or how we were going to manage this. That said, if you like the podcast, you want us to make more, consider supporting us on Patreon, which we have created and plan on doing more with as we get time and some subscribers. <laughs> yeah, some money would be good. Or if you'd like to advertise your local business, reach out. We'd rather obviously support you than Purple Mattress. but we're And we're open to ideas, so let us know. So here we go. We're going to take a break, as we've said. We're going to regroup, plan for a new season, and let you guys get a little taste of Belling History Past. So today's episode is the Halloween special. So this episode was a Halloween bonus episode, and it features some stories from our haunted hotspot here in Bellingham, Fairhaven, some classics from our Fairhaven gore and lore tours, and some fun electronic voice phenomenon and Mm. things from our ghost hunting buddy, Charles Crooks. Yes. So also check out Chuck's tours. He's Bellingham Ghost Hunt, which you can find from our website or by Googling Bellingham Ghost Hunt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And sign up for his fun events because he is a bona fide ghost whisperer. Yeah, that's the guy to talk to for sure. So enjoy the episode from that weird year of 2020 and uh, we will see you in the spring. Hello, 
and welcome to Bad Town, where we discuss the darkest and baddest parts of Bellingham and Whatcom County history. We are joined today, as always, by our season two co-host, Colby Labrie. Howdy-do. And Ren Urbekite. Hey, all you groovy ghouls and goblins. (laughs) Yes. From the Good Time Girls. So today we are having our oh-so-special Halloween episode, and it's just going to be over-the-top extra spooky. What is your favorite part of Halloween? Can we do a quick share? Everything. (laughs) Yes. Ren? Colby took mine, so... (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) We are kind of like gothy girls. We're like, yes. Yeah, all of it. But right now, I'm really excited about pumpkin beer, so we'll start with that. Ooh, okay. I'm going to go with um, 1970s, 1980s slasher films. Ooh. Ooh. Satanic Panic. (laughs) This is another good one from that era. Like, you know, all the crazy stuff around like Ozzy Osbourne and Dungeons and Dragons and (sighs) The Exorcist. Metal music. Yes. I'm excited about I every year I, I have to make a new Halloween playlist and that always consumes a, a good part of an evening of me like drinking a lot of wine and singing really loud yeah <laughs> so it's like monster mash on that no it's mostly like Susie and the banshees okay and- okay <laughs> that's what i thought would probably be in probably it some monster would- mash in the mix though too oh, yeah, okay it's a good song. you gotta have it i think it's the law it is yeah <laughs> in uh it's in colby's spooky uh mix and all halloween related karaoke what story are you telling me today well so today um we're gonna tell you some of our favorite spooky stories about bad towns haunted hot spot which is Fairhaven. (laughs) so i i did not know that Fairhaven was bellingham's haunted hot spot Fairhaven makes me think of lots of things uh i guess i guess haunted could be one of them but so tell me more yeah so well first of all Colby and I are not ghost hunters, um, as seen on TV, and and we don't really aspire to be. But just through our work, we've we've come across a lot of stories and have dug up a lot of the the actual history behind them, as well as just kind of ran into some weird shit ourselves. So that's your uh, preface here. And also, every October we run our our favorite tours of the year, which are called our gore and lore tours, and they feature all kinds of spooky seasonal stories. From true crime tales to ghost stories and all that stuff, that fun, spooky stuff. And we have downtown and Fairhaven version of the tour. We'll just do a quick plug that those are on sale now. So if you guys want to get in on one of those tours. Yeah, pandemic style, safety, small groups, masks and all that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we're talking, we're going to tell you about some of the things we've learned about Fairhaven, which is is really the spookiest. It's where we get the most good shit. I love good shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, both Gore and Lore tours are absolutely fun and fabulous, I have to say. But I myself have just always been a little bit partial to Fairhaven. It really holds like a, a special place in my Halloween goth teen heart. Because back in those olden days, uh, Fairhaven was just beginning to kind of transform. It was still a half-abandoned hippie hangout, essentially. And it hadn't yet become this upscale shopping district that we know today. There were actually still feral black cats roaming the streets. 
There were buildings with boarded up and empty windows. It was like wingnuts, gutter punks, and hippies hanging out at Tony's Coffee, smoking clove cigarettes, and playing chess. Really painted a picture. <laughs> yeah, that's that was Fairhaven of my youth. So because we were kind of goth punky kids, Halloween was like the best time of the year, of course. And we would get extra kooky spookily dressed up and get our pictures taken by Gordy Tweed at the pharmacy. And then it was like run up to the grocery store, which at the time was Hayden's, not Hagen's. And they gave away all their extra pumpkins. So we'd all grab pumpkins and go like carve them somewhere in Fairhaven and then like roll them down the hill, you know, pumpkin bowling and the usual like teenage mischief. So I had just have a lot of like really fun memories associated with Halloween in Fairhaven. But to be honest, I have to say um, as much time as I've spent down there, I've never actually seen a ghost in Fairhaven, although I have seen some weird stuff that could probably just was the mushrooms. <laughs> At the time. But uh, I, I am always amazed at how many stories I hear, especially people who come on the tours and tell me their own ghost stories. And it's just it's kind of mind boggling. But Fairhaven, like it has a ghost story for every single building, whether it's an old building, a new building. It doesn't matter. There are ghost stories. Why is that? Well, I always like to chalk it up to the Victorian buildings. Because, you know, they give you that old-timey haunted vibe. Although they've been kind of niceified, so they're not as creepy as they used to be. But I just always th think it's funny how, you know, like haunted houses are always portrayed as Victorian. Like it's never like a mid-century rambler. <laughs> you know? A ranch-style home. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, ranch. Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> but, you know, like I'm in reality, I've heard ghost stories from all kinds of places and buildings and houses and apartments, you know. Um, but I think there's partly truth to that idea that people did die at home and on the streets and in random buildings and places a lot more frequently in the past, I think. Whereas mm -hmm. nowadays, I think a lot more deaths happen, you know, in hospitals. If I guess death is you know, dying in a place lends itself to haunting such a place. I'm not really like an expert on how ghosts work, but <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be part of a, a sort of a ghost belief. But Fairhaven was also just a very wild westy place during the 1890s boom years. And there was a very transient population and lots of crazy and untimely deaths. In fact, the coroner would have to occasionally prop a dead guy up on the corner in the hopes that someone could identify their corpse. So yeah, it was Fairhaven. <laughs> That's one of those historic markers that we love to talk about. Yeah. Dead men displayed here right by Good Earth Pottery. Good Earth, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so there is there is another theory about why Fairhaven is so haunted, and it goes way back and further down the hill um, from the, the dead men on display. So before Fairhaven was even a twinkle in Dirty Dan's eye, it was the land of the Coast Salish tribal peoples um, for thousands of years. And that includes the Lummi Nation and other tribes and their ancestors. But when Dirty Dan showed up in the 1850s, so obviously there were already stories and legends and oral histories and they got told to Dan. If you're a true Bellinghamster, you know that Dirty Dan liked to tell stories. And these were some of his biggest hits for sure. So when Dan first arrived, there were only a couple of white settlers here who had taken up donation land claims. 
Um, and they all worked for the Hudson's Bay Company and were interested in some coal, which was found near where the Chrysalis Inn is today. So if you don't know what a donation land claim is, basically it is the idea that if you're coming here to settle and you squat on the land for four years, you get the 300 acres or more, depending on if you're married um, or white or so on and so forth. And uh, and then they'll they'll just give you that land. So what if with uh, Bellingham's hop housing market now we went back to that? And <laughs> it would just be like like millennials burying themselves up to their necks, not leaving. And not leaving. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting this lot. It has permitted plans already. I know. I know I can build an ADU here. Yeah. A tiny home. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's basically why Dirty Dan was here. But but w- as soon as he got here, I mean, he started learning all these stories. And one of those stories was about this hill that was actually a part of Dirty Dan's donation land claim. And it already had the name Dead Man's Hill or Dead Man's Point. And there were a number of reasons for that, but there was dead people buried in that hill already when Dirty Dan came in the 1850s. Do we know what hill this is? Yeah, actually, it is where the um, ferry terminal is today. Basically, Marine Park and Fairhaven Shipyards, if you go directly to the bottom of Harris Avenue, you run right into Fairhaven Shipyards, and it was kind of spanning all along that whole waterfront area. Wow. Okay. It's gone. (laughs) No hill. (laughs) We'll get to that. But the hill was referred to as Dead Man's Point, and and we're kind of figuring out the reasons for that. And one of the reasons and one of Dan's very best stories was about the Spanish massacre. And Dan actually had these brass buttons that he would show to people when telling this story about the Spanish massacre. And he said he had gotten them from local natives who had robbed the graves of their ancestors' enemies who were Spanish conquistadors said to have been killed in a fierce battle up near Padden Creek. So on that hill is where they apparently buried all of these conquistadors. And that is where the name started, the origins of the name. Um, So the gist is that the Spanish kind of showed up in these two ships. They came ashore and built some kind of fortification and the local natives felt threatened and banded together. And they all fought the Spanish in this in this one crazy bloody night. Um, Some of the Spaniards made it back to the ship and sailed away. But some, the ones who were killed, were buried nearby. So there's a lot of variations on this story and quite a wide range of dates and speculation as to when the Spanish arrived or whether they were pirates or who they were. Some historians kind of discredit the story because we don't have any Spanish documentation of this event, and they were known for keeping pretty detailed records. But it does seem like there was there are references in newspaper articles and things of some kind of mound or earthen fortification that was believed to be made by these Spanish. There are references and reports of Spanish artifacts being found in the area. Um, I've heard mention of things like helmets, blunderbuss, and uh, even a skeleton with knee-high Spanish boots. The most credible story is one about a Spanish goblet that was found in a garden in 1908 by Mr. Lee Rose. And supposedly they described it in pretty great detail and said that there was a stamp or mark of the date 1630 on the bottom. But um, where that ended up, I don't know. I've actually tried to track down like his ancestors on genealogy.com and... (laughs) 
It's like, hey, anything about your great, great, great grandfather's Spanish chalice? Um, (laughs) But no luck. Um, But what we do know is the area was, I mean, it was definitely explored by Francisco Eliza and others in circa 1791, because that's when all the islands in the San Juans got named. So, you know, it's not totally out of the question, but where is all the evidence? Who knows? It's all... (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> hard to substantiate when you don't have anything in hand to even look at or reference. Yeah. So what you're saying is there may have been Spanish explorers buried on Dead Man's Hill. So is that why Fairhaven is possibly so haunted? Well, <laughs> the story gets a little weirder. There's more to the story. Uh, it seems pretty clear that there were some type of burials that had already occurred on Dead Man's Point when Dan inherited that donation land claim. Some type of remains or artifacts were likely found there, but whether the remains were Spaniards, Native Americans, or others entirely, those have all been brought up as possibilities. By the 1860s, Whatcom County offered to buy the hill from Dan um, for use as a legitimate burial grounds, and Dan gladly sold it to them. He was he had a pretty strong reputation as being particularly fearful of the dead, so I don't think he was super stoked <laughs> to have that particular piece of land. It is thought that uh, the geological makeup of the hill was sandier and easier to dig than much of the surrounding area, so that's perhaps part of what made it a good choice for um, a cemetery. Yeah. Then they probably learned, what is it, a hundred years later that erosion near water (laughs) happens and it's probably not the best place for a... Well, they didn't even have a chance to learn that. (laughs) You you will soon find out. They didn't even have the chance because... After they started burying people there, it went on for about 20 years. And then in the 1880s, they kind of realized um, after about 70 new folks had been buried there, they decided to build Bayview Cemetery. It was dedicated and they were going to clear out that hill. And so they decided to start clearing out Dead Man's Hill and and removing them to Bayview Cemetery. Yeah, there was some issue with like Dirty Dan's deed to the land was faulty or something. So it was just like, uh, (laughs) never mind. Like we have this new other cemetery. Let's just move them over there. Let's just move them. That's easy. (laughs) That'll be totally cool. So they enlisted Coroner John M. Warriner, who we lovingly refer to as Coroner Warriner. And he's Fairhaven's resident undertaker. And he's the, the guy who got the job of removing and transferring all of these dead people to Bayview Cemetery. Right. Which this blows my mind because this is before there was even uh, streetcars or anything. So this would have been like, I don't know if you know where the Fairhaven waterfront is in relationship to where Bayview Cemetery is. Yeah. But that's a that's a pretty good haul with like wagon and horses yeah and, and you know ruddy decayed bodies and... Ugh. crazy Ugh. anyway yeah. go on happy halloween happy... <laughs> so you can just picture that so in august the um of 1889 the bellingham bay reveille they report that 64 bodies were dug up at Dead Man's Point, and only a very few of them were actually claimed. Um, the Paddens, father and children, and Dr. Hunter were reinterred by their relatives. And one of that was the body of an officer of the Hudson's Bay Company. He was buried in 1844, actually, which is pretty old. Um, but because the burial records were not well kept and many people could not afford a headstone, 
which would have had to be made in Seattle and then sent up by a boat during that time. The exact locations of some of these burials were really hard to recall. It was a hard job to find these plots. So the hill remained known as Dead Man's Point, even after they're kind of taking out these bodies. Um, And it was gradually removed over the years to make way for the waterfront industry. And that earth actually was used to fill in the marshy areas around the Fairhaven waterfront, which was tide flats at the time. And it became known and is still known as Commercial Point now instead of Dead Man's Point. (laughs) Doesn't doesn't have the same ring to it. It doesn't, right? (laughs) I say we bring it back. I know. (laughs) Way cooler. Um, So yeah, as they're like taking out this hill pretty much every time they go in over these over these years they find more human remains <laughs> that just kind of pop out of the hill so really some serious poltergeist stuff right here in uh, april of 1904 the bellingham herald um, reports bodies found at dead man's point coffin uncovered by men engaged in washing away the bluff many legends of the place <laughs> <Ooh. Good. laughs> This is my favorite one. Okay, it says, more evidence came to light this morning that the change of name from Dead Man's Point to Commercial Point marks an actual transformation now taking place at the historic burying ground of Bellingham Bay. With the washing down of one coffin box and the uncovering of another, it was shown that not all the graves were found when, soon after the town site of Fairhaven was laid out in 1889, the human remains buried there, so far as they could be located, were removed to the cemetery. Since the process was begun of hydraulicking away the bluff of Dead Man's Point, several skulls and parts of human skeletons have been washed out. These were near the outer edge of the original point. The coffins uncovered today were buried some distance back from what was the edge of the old bluff. Very little evidence of human remains could be found from the first box that was washed down this morning, although this was probably due to the general scattering of box and everything else in that vicinity by the force of the (laughs) hydraulic system. (laughs) So we're picturing here coffins being shot out into the bay by this crazy fire hoses was like, you know, just like spraying them out. Skulls and bones. Um, (laughs) It goes on to say that the stories that might be revived of the history of people whose bones are being thus uncovered would probably furnish material for many authors. In addition to the fact that the bluff was used for a common burying ground in this vicinity during the pioneer days, there are numerous legends in connection with the point. And they go on about the local tribes and the slaughter. Another one, they say, is that a ship once sailed into the harbor many years ago with a terrible contagious disease among its crew, and that those members who escaped being but a few in their number buried their stricken mates under the sod of the overhanging point. It also stated that in the early 50s, the garrison of United States troops at Fort Bellingham used the place for a burying ground, taking the bodies across the bay in boats. (laughs) That's what... (laughs) Yeah, so it really lives up to its reputation. There's a lot of dead people there. So it's not just the Spaniards in the 1600s. This goes on for some time. I just love imagining the coffins flying out into the bay. The hill was completely removed by 1919, and the Herald reported at that time, Dead Man's Point, now nothing but a memory, Indian burial ground dumped into the sea. 
So Jeez, that's dark. <laughs> I know. No. That's a really like you could not post that now. What? Really? Are you sure? <laughs> I, I know. The old newspapers is so cringy sometimes. <laughs> uh, I love going to uh, like the antique stores and looking at old time magazines. Oh, right. Like from the 50s and 60s. It's their gold. Yes. I know. Like, your husband will divorce you if you don't put Lysol in your coochie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or Luminol. Yeah. Great for back pain. <laughs> Also sweetens your tea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! So anyway, they removed a lot of earth, and it was all gone. And the paper remarked that you know, from time to time, there had been skulls and skeletons in earth, and they specifically said at that time Indian skulls and skeletons. And then they said early this week, an Indian skull that was almost flat from the forehead back was found. So this is really the interesting to me because this is the first like clear evidence that there were indigenous remains on the site since uh, many tribes on the coast practiced uh, skull flattening via cradle boarding as infants. It was basically like body skull modification was considered, you know, to make you more beautiful. And um, that was pretty much like discouraged, of course, by the first white missionaries to show up and whatnot. But so that seems pretty clear that was not a white person's skull that was found on the site. But what happened to that skull or any of these remains? Again, they don't say. I always imagine like finding that stuff at an estate sale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, please, if your grandpa has this in his attic, you know, now there's a thing called Nagpra. <laughs> so please don't just, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I was going to say maybe all of all of these artifacts were buried underneath the Melvin Tap House. Oh my God. And then that's why, no, that's not why it failed. Huh. <laughs> that's, yeah, they had more problems than that. <laughs> uh, that's a good theory, though. So I just want to say I, I recently gave a Zoom talk to the Association for Washington Archaeology Northwest Region and I was talking about some of these things and afterwards was contacted by the assistant state physical anthropologist for the DAHP or Department of Historic Preservation. And they were wanting to know because they wanted to add the site to their database of formal burial grounds. So I gave them all my sources and articles and things. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, Yeah. awesome. So you think the disturbance of these burial grounds is possibly why Fairhaven is so haunted? Yeah, I mean, that's that's just one theory. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Paranormal researchers, researchers often talk about how when horrifically violent acts happen at a place that the reverberations of those acts can affect the people in that place in the future. So there's also this idea that all those souls whose bodies were moved to Bayview Cemetery are kind of wandering around confused, or the ones whose remains ended up in the bay are lingering around trying to find a place to rest that doesn't exist anymore. Okay, so maybe that does explain why Fairhaven is super haunted. So what is your favorite ghost story? Well, the most famous ghost story probably in Fairhaven has got to be the Green Lady ghost at um, Sycamore Square. If you don't know, Sycamore Square is the big building on the corner of 12th and Harris. um, And that has all the little shops and restaurants in it, including 12th Street Shoes, Mambo Italiano, and the Black Cat. If Fairhaven is Bellingham's most haunted spot, then Sycamore Square is Fairhaven's most haunted hotspot. 
So it is the place. Um, it has been called a portal. And some of our ghost hunter friends actually use this building for ghost hunting classes and training because it is such a hotbed of haunted action. Um, Chuck told me once that he they when they take trainees there, they always go there because they've never come away without some piece of evidence, which is pretty cool. Um, and we actually have some of their EVPs. Um, if you're not hip to the ghost hunter lingo, that's an electronic voice phenomenon um, recorded in the building. And so we can share those with you a little bit later, hopefully. But um, we do share those on our tours as well. And they are pretty freaking scary. I didn't sleep for a week the first time I heard them. So, <laughs> But first, before we get to the EVPs, Colby, do you want to give us some um, history of that building? The building was originally called the Mason Block. And it was built in 1890 during the whole boom period. It was named after a, one of its investors, a Tacoma philanthropist, Alan Mason. And it's... You know, it's a Richardsonian Romanesque kind of office building, typical of buildings after this great Seattle fire of 1889. Um, the first floor had a grocery, a pharmacy. The middle floors were mostly professional offices. And the upper floors had apartments. And it also had a gentleman's club called the Cascade Club, which was like the rich man's, you know, answer to a saloon. Like it was a private club where they kept their private liquor and had their private pool tables and all kinds of stuff like that. The first building really purchased and renovated in the 70s by Ken Imus. And at that time, it became known as the marketplace. And sometime even more recently, it's been called Sycamore Square. I always have to sit, tell this story because my first job when I was 15 years old, I was a dishwasher at the Black Cat, which at that time was called Le Creperie and was a French restaurant. And then while I was working there, they opened an adjoining bar and that was called Le Chat Noir, which eventually everyone just called it Le Chat or The Chat. And then that became Americanized to The Black Cat. Which the shat. Yeah. The shat. <laughs> Let's go to the shat. Like if, I'm sure if you have a beautiful French accent, you can yes. say that in a way. But if I say it, I'm like, no. the shat. Yeah, it sounds really bad. <laughs> and I'm sure I've said that many times in my life. Let's go to the shat. <laughs> <laughs> but the whole black cat is actually was a nod to the feral Fairhaven cats that I mentioned earlier. But when I worked there, many of my coworkers had had ghostly experiences. I was always kind of jealous and mad that I didn't have any. But things like, you know, chairs, the chairs in the restaurant would be like turned to face the windows and just weird, unexplained little things like that. But the biggest story was another dishwasher there actually saw the famous green lady ghost. So he saw a woman in full period costume, green, of course, walks by the kitchen and he assumed, you know, she was just someone dressed up and he finished whatever he was doing. And he walked over to the bar and was like, hey, what's going on? Let's see if there's something cool happening or what's going on. And the bartender was like, Jason, what are you looking for? And of course, he says, well, did you see the lady in the green dress? And she came this way. And they were like, dun, dun, dun. Jason, you have seen the ghost. <laughs> So this is how, you know, the green lady kind of got revived that story. So she was usually seen on the upper two floors of Sycamore Square. The black cat is on the third floor. The top floor, I think, has a salon now. And the building, I just got to mention because 
it's very trippy if you've been in Sycamore Square. It has it's like an open courtyard in the middle with like light wells from these little widow walks in the ceiling and there's balconies and staircases all around. So it just has this this weird, I don't know, vertigo-y feeling. And intriguingly, different psychics, apparently, who have come in have said independently of each other that they felt someone, perhaps the screen lady, had fallen or jumped to her death within the building. Oh, so is there any historical evidence or references to this? Well, not exactly, but there is evidence of this woman who died mysteriously in the building, um, and many people do believe that she is the green ghost. Her name was Flora Blakely, and she was the wife of the town marshal, Joseph Blakely, and they lived in one of the apartments on the top floor of the building. And they also owned a quarter of the building. So prior to coming to Fairhaven, they had lived in Oregon. And right before they moved here, their 10-year-old daughter Kay had died, sadly. And also Flora's sister Retta had recently died in the Oregon State Asylum for the Insane. So the Blakeleys were only in Fairhaven a short while before Flora's own death occurred in the Sycamore Square building. An interesting thing is on her death return signed by the coroner, it states that her cause of death was, quote, brain disease, just <laughs> um, a little bit vague. <laughs> her obituary was really brief, too, and it stated that she had been, quote, overcome with a sudden illness. So it was sort of unusual in a time um, of often long and flowery obituaries, especially for someone like the wife of the town marshal um, to have such a short obituary. So a sudden illness, a brain disease, pretty vague, could mean anything from a tumor to syphilis to some kind of mental illness. Um, but some people do speculate that Flora was despondent over her daughter's death or that mental illness ran in her family, judging by her sister's um, state at the asylum. And there was a total social stigma at the time about mental illness. So it could have been hushed up and that could be why we get that vague explanation. So what happened then to Joseph Blakely? Well, soon after Flora's death, he basically returned to Oregon and continued his law enforcement career there. He remarried, had another family, and sent his son by Flora to be raised by her parents. And that son never had any children of his own, so Flora's lineage kind of died out there. Uh, some people found it a little suspicious. I've heard people speculate, like, well, why did he just go get remarried right away? Did he want to get rid of her? Did he push her? <laughs> But <laughs> I also think it was not uncommon and, you know, that he probably just felt like I just want to start over and start a new life and forget all that unpleasant stuff. But again, psychics and ghost hunters, you know, continue to kind of frequent this building. Like we said, it's this haunted hotspot. But as far as I know, nobody has picked up much directly from the Green Lady Ghost other than that initial impression that someone had possibly fallen or died. And uh, she just seems to favor showing herself randomly to employees in the building. <laughs> but I do have to say that I hate, hate, hate walking around on the top floor of the building. I always feel like I'm going to fall or be pushed or be like compelled to throw myself over the edge or something but I am afraid of heights, so that's kind of typical. But it is really weird. You do need to go in there and walk around up there. And I'm particularly intrigued with, like, the uh, widow's walks up in the ceiling, which I don't think you can access publicly. But they're a little um, even higher up. There's these tiny little walkways 
you know, that look out. So from the top of the building, you could see, I'm assuming you'd have a great view of the bay. And these widow's walks were like an architectural feature that were named when widows would go up and watch or women would go watch for their husbands to return from sea, which a lot of the times they didn't. Hence the name widow's walk or you're just walking around up there in a circle looking and looking for him to return. But anyway, it's a cool building. It's got a lot of spooky vibes. I have had some creepy things happen in there, and I've heard a lot of stories and continue to hear stories. Can you share any of the creepy things? Well, what recently I was doing a tour, I think it was last year, and I had just given a tour to some women who work in one of the offices on the third floor. And they had told me, you know, little stories of things that happened to them, like, you know, doorknobs turning and lights flashing and so on, and just little unexplainable things that creep them out when they're there late at night and no one else is in the building. And so it's right after that I'm giving another tour and I have this group standing right in front of that office where those ladies worked. And as I'm talking, and I, and I kind of started telling the story like, oh, last week I had these ladies on and they said all these weird things happen. And at that moment, the lights just flashed on and off in the office, which had just been dark. And I was like, oh, that's kind of like weird and coincidental. And I was like, did you guys just see that? Yeah, you know. And then I was like, huh, well, you know, whatever, somebody's in there. But then as I kept talking, like it was just stayed dark in there for a while. But then right at the end of when I was talking, there were like Venetian blinds. And it was like someone was taking their hand from the inside and running them up and down the blinds. Mm-hmm right behind like where the people were standing and I was just like the hairs just stood up on the back of my neck and I was just like I don't know if someone in there is messing with us or what but we just I'm like okay we're gonna move on now (laughs) let's go over here (laughs) so I don't know there's just all kinds of weird little things like that and I don't know it stayed dark I could pay those people to do that on my tours (laughs) yeah people on your tour probably thought we paid them I know. I was like, this is genius. <laughs> we should really talk to them again. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, ghost hunters and EVPs. Can you explain what that's all about? Sure. Yeah. When Back when the Good Time Girls first started, one of um, our good friends, Chuck Crooks, uh, was a member of a local ghost hunting group at that time called Boo. B-O-O-O, so three O's, or the Bellingham Observers of the Odd and Obscure, (laughs) which is one of the best acronyms I've ever heard. That's so much better than EVPs. I know. I'm like, (laughs) boo. Have you heard of boo? Um, I think boo is defunct, unfortunately, but there are still, I think, some ghost hunting action to be had around town. But anyway, at the time, um, they had access to the building and were doing ghost hunting there and captured these EVPs. And they were kind enough to share them for use on our tours. Ren, do you want to talk about like more about what they are exactly? Yeah. So basically how they get these EVPs is when they're doing a ghost hunting thing, there's a lot of different techniques that they're using. So and they'll be there for like hours at night um, using all of their different tools and just sort of hanging out there. And so while they're doing that, they um, they set up a recorder and they just record straight through the entire time they're there. And the idea is that this this voice recorder can pick up different frequencies than we can hear 
here um, in the moment. So then what they do after the ghost hunt, they go back and listen, you know, with the volume turned up and good headphones on to see if they can find any abnormalities in the um, recording. And so that's where these came from. These are voices that happened while they were there, ghost hunting, that they didn't hear at the time. It wasn't until they played them back that they realized they were hanging out with the cool ghosts and goblins. Part in the grounds of the house, he makes way in. And, uh, um, good old dog. Because they, right now, it's not a seller's market. Yeah. And they would lose. So. What we're hearing in that one, and maybe we'll play it one more time just so you can, you know what you're looking for, is that we've got um, the ghost hunters who you'll you'll kind of hear talking. And then in the background, you kind of hear this this old timer kind of gold digger sort of fellow's yeah. voice. The it's prospector. A, I call him the prospector. <laughs> he's like a prospector. Thank you. Yeah. That's the word. And so he, you hear the, right after you hear his voice, you say, you hear the ghost hunters saying like, oh, well, it's just not a seller's market here. But you will hear now that you know what you're looking for, the prospector's voice. And what he says is, dead old dog. Excuse me. Part in the ground of the house he makes way And, and uh, dead old dog. Excuse me. Because they, right now it's not a seller's market. Yeah. And they would lose. Fun, weird. Okay, so this one is actually one of the EVPs taken from Sycamore Square. And these guys, I can't remember, Colby, what is going on? What are the um, ghost hunters saying? That's why. There's like just random chatter and someone says something like, thank God it's Sunday, man. Yeah. <laughs> thank God it's Sunday, man. And then, so it's our friend Chuck Crooks who is who is here doing this ghost hunt. And they're, you know, hanging out and chatting or whatever while they're looking around. So presumably these ladies, these two ladies are hanging out with them and you hear them, you'll hear their whispers and they say, this is fun. This is fun. And they say, he's a weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> It's super creepy, but I love to think that these are like these counterculture hippie squatter people who are probably hanging out here in Sycamore Square, like getting high. <laughs> They're so funny because like, I mean, a lot of EVPs you hear are just sort of gobbledygook or whispers or like one word or something. These are like super clear and interesting. So kudos for these ghost hunters for getting such amazing, clear EVPs with like clear words and sentences. But why are they ghosts talking and saying these things? <laughs> I cannot tell you. <laughs> But it sure is fun to listen to. <laughs> oh, I'm going to take the elevator. Thank God it's Sunday, man. I'm really curious. <laughs> He's a weirdo. <laughs> So this one, again, this is our friend Chuck Crooks, and he's um, being introduced to a, a fellow ghost hunter um, who is named Mark. And so you'll hear another person. There's Chuck and there's Mark. And then there's another person who introduces th these two fellows. And he says, Mark, Chuck, Chuck, Mark. And then you hear this like cookie monster voice <laughs> that is hanging out with these guys as well. And he is a ghost. And he helps in the introductions by saying, Mark. Chuck, Chuck, Mark. This <laughs> gravelly voice. This one really is weird. It really creeps me out, but also makes me laugh because <laughs> it does sound like Cookie Monster. 
Jordan. Jordan. Okay. Chuck. Chuck. Okay, I got you. Clear demon from hell. Right. (laughs) But he's so helpful. He's very, he's nice. (laughs) Introducing them. He's like, I'm going to help. He's got some manners. <sighs> I don't I don't these things are so weird to me because yeah it's like okay well I guess they could have you know the ghost hunters could have somehow faked that or something but like I I believe Chuck like and it seems very clear that they're like this was nothing we heard or nothing you know also why would they say these random ass things I mean, if I was trying to fake ghost talking, I'd probably pick something more like, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Beware. (laughs) Go back. You're doomed. You could save at least $300 a year by switching to all (laughs) saved. Oh, my God. God, Clearly a demon from hell. (laughs) Well, there you have it. Electronic voice phenomenon. Um, we have no idea what the spirits are trying to tell us. <laughs> but we love we love ghost stories and we love people who come on our tours. If you want to hear some more and tell us your ghost stories, uh, we'll continue offering pandemic safe style pro- small private tours year round. So you can come do a Gorenlore tour really anytime, at least as long as we're in COVID land. And we will also be doing more virtual events and content. So, you know, keep your eyes and ears peeled for all cool stuff that we're going to do. Cool. And really quick, how many people can be on this private tour? I can't remember. Well, we're kind of, it's flexible. It, uh, we're kind of leaving it, you know, to people to kind of police themselves and their households and Pod, you know, pods or whatever you call your pandemic bubble. So, you know, we can be kind of flexible on it, but we're, we're trying to keep it like eight-ish maximum. And it's a minimum or we have a hundred dollar minimum, but that can be for two people, it can be for one person. <laughs> so that, that covers up to five people. And then beyond that, where there's extra charges for more people, but um, we're pretty, you know, willing to like work with people's situation if it's all safe and sane. And and we're talking about also possibly doing some like more um, semi-private tours where, you know, it can maybe just be a few unrelated couples uh, because people have asked about that. But we're we're still kind of it's it's a brave new world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're figuring things out like everyone else on the fly. Yeah. Also, if you want to learn more about Fairhaven ghost stories, you got to check out Haunted Fairhaven by Tammy Gorman, which is available at Village Books, of course, which is probably also haunted. (laughs) Go there and get that book. And if you're into ghost hunting, again, I don't think Boo is currently doing much, but I did specifically talk to Chuck about using the EVPs in this episode, and he mentioned he's considering doing private ghost hunting you know, pandemic safety style. So check out Chuck and his ghost hunting partner, Elena's website, which is called Bellingham Ghost Hunt Class at ghosthuntclass.wixsite, W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com slash Bellingham. Well, this is great. So thank you so much for sharing these very spooky tales. And we hope that you have a fun, safe and spooky Halloween weekend.
right, y'all, that wraps up this episode of Belling History. Please do subscribe slash review our podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. Like us on all of the social medias and check out our tours and events or read our show notes and blog. All of that you can find at bellinghistory.com. We'd like to thank Devin Champlin and the late great Lucas Hicks for the use of the Gallus Brothers song, Too Bad West Coast Blues. You can find more Gallus Brothers tunes on Bandcamp, and you can find Devin Champlin also on Bandcamp and at Champlin Guitars in Bellingham. Lost my hat, lost my brim, looking like a coast swinging from a limb. That's too bad, too bad. Well, I got no bugging, I got no smokes. I look like Grandpa and all of his folks. That's too bad. Tune in next time for more belling history and bad town. <laughs> Good night, y'all. Woohoo! Thank you.